So I've asked you to turn to the New Testament uh, Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're beginning a new book today. And you know, here at Calvary, one of the things that we do is we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll start at the beginning and we'll, we'll study all the way through, and we go pretty much chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And as we get into Matthew over the next few months, actually, we're going to find that there's a, a lot of practical application and there's, there's a lot about how we live out being followers of Jesus and, and what it all means. We're also going to find that there is in our world, there's the Jesus of our culture and then there's the Jesus of our Bible and the two aren't always the same. And many people have a concept of Jesus, and so sometimes you'll do something that doesn't fit their concept of Jesus, and they'll say something like, you call yourself a Christian. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, and, and so what you'll find is the cultural Jesus is, is very different at times than the biblical Jesus. So we're going to discover as we travel through the biblical Jesus. And uh, we're also going to look, because this is written in a certain century, the first century, in a certain culture, in a you know, certain time and culture. So we're going to be able to look at what these things mean, meant to the original hearers, but also what, what, what they would mean to us today on the other side of the world in a very different culture, in a very, very different time span, uh, time in which we live. So anytime I get into a book, one of the things that I like to do is I like to look at the person who wrote the book and find out why it is that God chose this person to write this particular book. So I put on your, your outline, there's a couple of paragraphs there, and I'm going to start with Matthew the writer. And uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke tells the story this way with your pen in hand. And, and uh, notice he says, after that, he went out, and that's Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector, go ahead and underline that, named uh, Levi. And I want you to pay attention that it says named Levi, and there's that word for named, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And I've underlined that. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great, a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Later on, it would say there were sinners and all that at the, at the table. And uh, we'll talk about that later. So that's how Luke tells the story. Now, when Matthew tells the story, it's, it's the same details, but there's a couple of things that are very different. So I've put in Matthew chapter 9 there on your outline, when Matthew tells the story, it says, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man called Matthew. And I, I want you to just note that this is a very different word than named Matthew. This is called Matthew, sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. So in Luke's gospel, he's called Levi, but in Matthew's gospel, he's called Matthew. So we also see in Luke's gospel, he's named Levi, but in Matthew's gospel, he's called Matthew. So here's what this means, and you want to write this down. His mama called him Levi, but Jesus called him Matthew. Isn't that a great point? His mama, called, his mama named him Levi, but Jesus called him Matthew. So one of the things that we find out is that as our story begins, he is a tax collector. And uh, a tax collector in those days would be given, he would be working for the Romans, and he'd be given a certain area. And the Romans would say, we want you to collect this amount of money from this area. Anything that you collect beyond that is, is yours to keep. And uh, the only people who would know the amount that was supposed to be collected would be the tax collector and Rome. That wasn't something that they distributed. And so tax collectors would obviously overcharge and they would become very wealthy. And if somebody didn't pay the tax that was levied against them, then the Roman soldiers would come in and they would help with the collection. 
as uh, a, a Jewish person working for the Romans as a tax collector, they would automatically exclude him from worship. Nobody would fellowship with him. He would be considered uh, dishonest in the sense that they know that he's taking uh, more than he should be taking, and they would also see him as, as, as the enemy. It, this would be raising money for the Romans would be like if there was somebody among us and they said, hey, I'm collecting money for ISIS. And uh, you know, we, we, would, we would not think so highly of that. So that's kind of how they felt about him. So he's a tax collector. But we also know in Luke's gospel, it says that he's named Levi, which is very interesting uh, because he was probably named Levi because of the tribe that he originally came from. So there on your outline, each tribe had different responsibilities, but all the way back in the Old Testament, I'm pulling one verse, I could have pulled many, it says, so Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, and I've underlined that, the sons of Levi who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So because his name is Levi, it's, it's assumed that he comes from the tribe of Levi which would mean they were the priests, and so he would grow up and he would have been training for the priesthood there in, in Israel. Now that is, is very, very likely, and it makes a lot of sense to us because what we're going to find is that this Matthew is going to have an amazing command of what you and I would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. But something happens along the way. He's trained for the priesthood, but something happens that causes him to walk away. Some suggest that maybe he looked around, he saw what was going on in the temple. They were charging, overcharging people for everything. And uh, we certainly will read about that as we travel through. And there was this extortion and usury and taking advantage of people and controlling people. And and it could be that that he just looked on and said, I'm just done with this. I'm just done with it. Others suggest that maybe as he looked at all of the rules and the rituals that had to be kept, he looked on and said, I can't do it. I just can't hold all of this together all of the time. So we don't really know why he walked away, but we know that he walked away. But one day, as he's there at the tax collector's booth, Jesus comes walking by. Now, Jesus has been in the area. He's been teaching. So Matthew certainly heard some of the things that Jesus has been saying. Again, Matthew's gospel, I'll read that paragraph again. As Jesus, went, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. So the question is, who is the one who begins to call him Matthew? Well, obviously, it's Jesus who begins to call him Matthew. After meeting Jesus, this one who was called or named Levi after meeting Jesus, he will never refer to himself again as Levi. He will only refer to himself as Matthew. And I've put there on your outline, apparently Matthew chooses to see himself as Jesus sees him and will only say about himself what Jesus says about him. So Jesus begins to call him Matthew, which would be for this one who used to be called Levi, that would be an entirely new identity. So what does Matthew mean? Well, there on your outline, Matthew just means the gift of God, the gift of God. The rest of the world would remember his past. They would look on, they would call him Levi. They would recognize him as a tax collector who took money from them, who walked away from the faith, who was a traitor. But Jesus is the one who looked on and said, well, that might be true. But when I see you, I see that you're the gift 
of God. It's amazing how Jesus sees us very different than the world sometimes sees us. The point is that if Levi can become a disciple, anyone can become a disciple. And so Jesus steps in and changes his identity. Now, one of the other things that I would just, just for fun, go ahead and write this down. For Matthew, meeting Jesus, meeting Jesus led to a big party. Uh, let me uh, go ahead and read it again from Luke's gospel. And he says, after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And the part that I underlined, it says, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. One of the things that I notice, and we're going to see as we travel through this gospel and any of the gospels, but meeting Jesus typically leads to celebration, not commiseration. And uh, sadly, in our world over the last couple of hundred years, something changed. And meeting Jesus came to be associated more with commiseration than celebration. We also see that, that um, the people who in, in the Gospels and, and, and here who are at this, this party with Jesus, the people who would be most comfortable being around Jesus would be the ones that would be commonly called as sinners. They would be comfortable around him. They would enjoy his presence. And many, many times their lives are changed by him. As we travel through, what we're also going to find is that the people who are the most uncomfortable being around Jesus are going to be the people who are considered the most religious. And uh, so we'll find that interesting as we travel through. So I want you to write this down, and there in your outline it says, Levi, as Levi, he walked away from organized religion. Now, if you go into the world and uh, you, you have friends and they say, I am done with organized religion, invite them, invite them to this church. And you just say, you know, if you're done with organized religion, Calvary's the right place for you. We are not organized religion, we are disorganized religion. So just come on, you'll feel right at home. So as Levi, he walks away from organized religion, but we also notice as Matthew, he follows Jesus and brings his friends. He walked away from organized religion as Levi, but now as Matthew, he now follows Jesus and he brings all of his friends. There was something about meeting Jesus in the New Testament that caused people to say, I want to tell everybody that I know. So when Matthew meets Jesus, immediately he invites all the friends that he can to come and meet Jesus. I would say, and I, would, um, I don't even know how to say this, but but if the Jesus that you are following has not caused you to want to go and tell everyone you know, you need to look at the Jesus that you are following. Because in the Bible, what we find is when somebody encounters him, they tend to respond by immediately telling everyone they know. And that's the case with Matthew. Another thing that we're going to see about Matthew and you want to write this down, is that God uses Matthew's past, but, doesn't def- but Matthew doesn't define himself by his past. Matthew, early on, being called Levi, again, probably from the tribe of Levi, uh, being trained as a priest, will have an amazing command of the Old Testament scriptures, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures. And so when we travel through, he is going to highlight 
all of the times this is a prophecy being fulfilled. So there's going to be a phrase that's going to appear in Matthew more than any of the other gospels there in your outline. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. And so he's going to be able to do that. Now, God's going to, to use that on that end. On the other hand, when Matthew walks away from the priesthood, he becomes a tax collector. Uh, they would also call him a publican. Now, in order to do that, you had to, you had to learn a form of shorthand where you could write uh, what people were saying somewhat verbatim. Now, that's going to be interesting because in Matthew's gospel, there's going to be five major discourses, uh, sermons that Jesus gives. And it appears as we read them that somebody had been writing them down verbatim, or at least almost verbatim, as they were being spoken, which would not make sense for any of the other disciples. But Matthew being trained as a publican, a tax collector, he would have been trained in that shorthand. 60% of this book is going to focus in on the teachings of Jesus. Some of the other books focus in on uh, miracles and some of the other things, but this is going to focus in on the teachings of Jesus. So interesting to me, at least, that early in Matthew's life, as he was training for the priesthood, uh, he didn't have any idea at that point that God would use him one day to have all that information to go into this book of Matthew. And then when when he was a tax collector, he had no idea that one day God would be using him, again, using that shorthand to transcribe the sayings of Jesus, the, the words of Jesus. So now his experience is from walking away from everything that he held to, to now wanting to tell everybody that he knows about Jesus. One of the best things that, that uh, you and I can ever learn to do is to begin to see ourselves as Jesus sees us and to purpose, like Matthew, to only say about ourselves what it is that, that God says about us. I, I find it interesting that, that uh, we live in a world, even as Christians, where it's very common for us to define ourselves forever by our past and our past failings. For instance, if you go to any group that, that, uh, that deals with substance abuse, any recovery group, it's very common to stand up and say, hi, my name is Dan and I am currently, and uh, we define ourselves by what our past used to be. Matthew's going to be very, very different than that. He's never going to refer to himself based upon his past. Just something to, to think through. So as, as we get into this book, this book is going to be written 20, 30 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. Um, as we get into it, the, the first part is going to deal with Jesus' birth. The last part is going to deal with his death, burial, and resurrection. But the middle is going to be given topically, not chronologically. So Matthew's not trying to create a chronological study of the life of Jesus, but a topical study. So some things aren't going to be in a chronological order. Also, it's important as we get into this that his audience is going to be primarily first century Jewish people. So he's going to be speaking to that particular audience. He's going to focus in on why Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. You and I, over the course of the next few months, are going to learn a great deal about the culture there in Israel 2,000 years ago and what it, what it meant to live, to live or just to be Jewish. And, and uh, again, we'll, we'll uh, be able to look at it, what that means to us today. I'm going to jump right into verse 1, 
And uh, Matthew is going to begin with a genealogy. Now the good news of this is I'm not going to read all the way through every name of this genealogy. That's where you respond by saying, thank you, Jesus. All right. So, but I do have to go through the first verse and uh, we're going we're gonna to learn a couple of things. First of all, in this genealogy, uh, in the first century, Jewish people used genealogies extensively. This is not something that we, on the other side of the world 2,000 years later, tend to do. They used genealogies for court cases. Uh, to, they, they kept great records of their ancestry. When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, certain land was given to certain groups, and then uh, that was divided up even more. So you go a few generations and there's a dispute over the land, you would go to court and you would say, I am so-and-so, my father, so-and-so, my father, and you go all the way up the ladder and you say, and on this date, you know, 800 years ago, this land was given to this father, I am the the descendant, and so this comes to me. And the other person would come in and say, well, I am so-and-so, and and this is my father, and and they go up and they'd say, well, this land, and then they would settle it based upon the genealogy. Again, we don't typically do that in, in our world. But genealogies were very important in that time, especially the genealogy that would relate to the one that would become the Christ or the Messiah. Verse 1, he says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now my Bible says Messiah, many of your Bibles say Christ, we'll talk about that. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. Well, When he says, he begins immediately with Jesus, and he says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Jesus there on your outline is the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word, uh, the longer Hebrew word would be Yehoshua, which just means Yahweh is salvation, God is salvation. Some would say Jehovah is salvation. But that would be who he is, that Jesus is literally, his name is God our salvation. Jesus the Messiah. Now my Bible says Messiah, which is the Hebrew way of saying Messiah. It would be Mashiach in the Hebrew. Uh, Some of your Bibles say Christ or Christos in the Greek, which would just be the Greek way. It's the same person. That is his title. And that there on your outline, Christ or Messiah just means anointed one. The Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah, this Christ to come. And uh, he had to come through a certain lineage. And so he says, and they knew the lineage, by the way. It says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, and he says the son or descendant of David. So the Jewish people understood that their Messiah, when he arrived, would be a descendant of David, who was a king. And uh, this comes from 2 Samuel, and I'll just give the verse there. We'll go through it real quick. It says, the Lord who declares to you, uh, God speaking to uh, David, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now underline this part. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So they realized that this was more than just the next person to be born and David's house. Whoever this was would be the Messiah. He would set up that kingdom, and that kingdom would last forever. Now, for those of you who've been around the Bible for some time, one of the things that you'll be keenly aware of is that David's throne was not in heaven. David's throne was on the earth. 
when that is ultimately fulfilled, that will be fulfilled on the earth, not in heaven. And uh, the kingdom of God in heaven is very different than the kingdom of David on the earth. And uh, that's a story for another day. But the Bible talks about when Jesus comes back, that kingdom will be established on the earth. Again, a story for another day. So he says, they were expecting this one to come from David. And then it says, also the, house, or the son of Abraham. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God spoke to Abraham and he said this on your outline. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And I've underlined this part. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And they understood that the blessing of the Messiah, the Christ, would come through first Abraham, all the way down through David, and then through a number of other people. So uh, I'm not going to read through this, uh, this genealogy. I do want to highlight something that I'm not even going to go through, but what makes this genealogy very unique, which would be very different than any other Jewish genealogy, is that this genealogy includes several women. And I've put their names there in the verse that they're in, and you can read their stories later. But uh, in Jesus' genealogy, there's a prostitute, uh, there's an adulterous woman, there's a Gentile lady, and uh, there's a lady who had a relationship with her father-in-law. So there's some very, very sordid um, uh, stories in there. They're very fascinating, but the idea is God can use anybody to accomplish his purpose. And uh, so then I'm going to skip down to verse 16 because I can't pronounce most of the words. So we're just going to go to verse 16. We finally come down to Jacob was the father of Joseph, and it says the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah, and some of your Bibles will say the Christ. And of course, Mary is the the last one, the last woman in this genealogy. Both Mary and both Joseph were descendants of David. And so Joseph will become the adoptive father, and that'll that'll be uh, highlighted as we go. Verse 17, he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. If, if you read those, the, you're, you're going to find that there are several people who are left out of the genealogy who were part of the original genealogy. Matthew is writing to first century Jews who knew all of the names, so he's just highlighting some of the major players. And if you get a good commentary, they will track that down. It's wonderful. Like if you're trying to fall asleep at night and you can't, you get that out, you start reading that, it'll put you right where you need to be. So, and that's for free. Just take that and just trust me on that. So uh, verse 18, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and in verse 16 it says he was the husband of Mary. Here it's betrothed, or however your Bible says it. Before they came together, and that's significant, she was found, and all of our Bibles have the word found, so you want to underline that, to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's also important. So it began by saying he's going to be the son of Abraham, the son of David, Now he's by the Holy Spirit. This is where he becomes the son of God. And uh, we might miss that, but uh, they they would pick up on that. When Luke tells the story, he says it like this there in your outline. The angel comes to Mary, and we read this at every Christmas. 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now, it's important for us to understand that this is something, and this will be highlighted, that the Holy Spirit does. This is not a sexual relationship in any way, shape, or form. And uh, we're going to see this several times. He's of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that's important because you and I live in a day where there's a lot of different religions around. For instance, locally, uh, if you come from a Mormon background, then you would know that you were taught as a Mormon that Elohim, God, came to the earth as a man one night. He goes to a virgin's house. Her name is Mary. He goes into the house and they have a relationship that night, a physical sexual relationship. She gets pregnant. Then he then goes back to heaven, back as Elohim. And so they would teach that Mary became pregnant by a sexual relationship. The Bible goes out of its way to say that, no, it's, it's something done by the Holy Spirit. So we'd be very, very different in our understanding than, say, say Mormons would be. Does that make sense? So uh, verse 18 again, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In the first century, and again, this is written in a very specific century, there were two stages of the marriage. Typically, what would happen would be that the the family would come together and they would arrange the marriage. It's not something that the Bible mandated. It was just something that they did in their culture. Um, It's also important to, to know that arranged marriages were not forced marriages, so the son would be consulted, the daughter would be consulted, and they, the families would say, we, we like this, how do you feel about this? And there are several places in the Old Testament where the daughter would say, yeah, I'll, I'll go be this person's wife, and that's the idea. So it's arranged, but not forced. So they both had to say yes. If the daughter was going, oh, dad, please, disgusting, he'd say, well, okay, well, we'll, we'll keep looking. So just so you know that. So, so ladies, that's where you say, thank you, Jesus, again. The, so it was forced, uh, I mean, it, was, it was arranged, not forced. Typically, though, in that culture, the couples would become engaged or betrothed by age 12 or 13. Now, in some cases, it would be as early as five years old, and you would just kind of grow up knowing that that's your, your husband. Once the decision became official that they were going to become husband and wife, there, there was uh, an agreement that they came to, and once that agreement took place, they were considered husband and wife even though they had not come together in a physical way. So the daughter would live with her parents and the son would live with his parents. And it would be about another year. And during that year, the son would prepare for his wife to come to his house, his father's house, and he would be preparing a place for her there. And it would take about a year. And then he would come and he would get the bride and everybody kind of knew when that was going to happen. The bridesmaids would be ready and, uh, and then the, the groomsmen would be ready. And so they would come. So sometimes uh, people talk about that. They, they never really knew. Well, they kind of knew. It was kind of like, you know, the, is it coming at two o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning? Not this year or next year. That wasn't the idea. So you knew when it was going to happen. So you were ready and all your bridesmaids would be there. And so then they would come back and then they would consummate the wedding. Although they were considered husband and wife for a year at that point. In that time period, 
if they were to dissolve the marriage, even though they had not come together physically, it would take a certificate of divorce because they were considered by their, their culture and their society as being married, as being married. And so it's in that final year where they, everybody's agreed, Mary and Joseph are now husband and wife, they're betrothed, they haven't come together. It's in that time that Mary is found to be with child. Now, if you were to go to Luke's gospel, and I didn't put it on your outline, but we did talk about it at Christmas. Mary realizes that this is taking place. The angels appeared to her, said, here's what's happening. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. She's apparently there for a couple of months. When she comes back, Mary is somewhere between four and six months pregnant, and she's showing. And uh, so, so that's where she is found to be with child. So verse 19, it says, and again, this is by the Holy Spirit, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, um, in that day, if you were in that final year and you're legally married, even though you hadn't come together, if she gets pregnant, that's considered adultery. And where they lived was not in the, the cities, uh, the major cities. They were kind of out in the country. And so this being found pregnant could be a real danger to Mary. Uh, literally, you could be stoned for that type of thing. If you've ever heard of honor killings and things of that nature, uh, they took this very, very serious. It would be, uh, you would ruin the reputation of your reputation, the family's reputation, and it would be a disgrace to, to your, your, the husband that you hadn't come together with at that point. So he wants to put her away privately. He doesn't want to publicly humiliate her, but he doesn't know what to do because the girl that he's supposed to spend his life with is now pregnant. So verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. It's interesting that he says, Joseph, son of David. He reminds him, Joseph, you come from the line of David. Remember that prophecy? Whoever this Messiah is, he's going to come from that line. And so he says, Joseph, son of of David. The next line he says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That's important because many times an angel will appear and the angel will say, do not be afraid. And because we are when, when that happens. The angel doesn't say that. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The idea is, Joseph, people are going to say some things. There's going to be some consequences. People aren't going to want to associate with you, but don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The angel goes on and he says, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His people from their sins. Again, He says that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's not a physical thing. I I think it's important uh, to write this down. In verse 21, he says, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus's purpose is to save people from sins. And you want to write that down. In our culture, typically we come to Jesus because we want him to enhance our life to help us in some way. Uh, And we'll say, you know, God has a great purpose for you. And if you allow God to step in, he'll restore your marriage, he'll restore your finances, he'll restore your relationships. And those are all the things that we want. That's all true and that's all well and, and, and good. 
but your primary need is for somebody to take care of your sins. Because if your relationships, your finances, and all that are restored, but those sins aren't taken care of, that right relationship with God isn't taken care of, all that could take place, but you'll still spend eternity separated from God. And if you know the description of that place, it's not good. The primary reason that Jesus came was to save us from our sins. And that's what every person needs the most, which is very different uh, than than many times what we hear in, in our world. Verse 22. Now all this took place, again this is Matthew, the ex-priest. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What did the Lord say? Verse 23. Behold the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And we all say, what does Emmanuel mean? Which, translates, which translated means, and you want to underline, God with us. 700 years before Jesus was born, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and he says, here's how it's going to happen. And I put the verse there in your outline. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Bible teaches that God became a man and his purpose was to save us from our sins. All Christians believe that Jesus is God, God with us. Every other belief system on the planet believes that Jesus is not God. It's the dividing line between that which is Christian and everything else. So he highlights that. Verse 24, he says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep. And I I underlined, awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. In our society, we forget how significant this is. He awoke from his sleep and took Mary. The idea is that he operated in immediate obedience. Why did he do that immediately? In that society, she's a girl who's supposed to be married to this guy, but she's pregnant. They could stone her. Her family could could disown her. So as a protection for Mary... Joseph immediately gets up that day, has the ceremony, and brings her home as his wife. Now she's protected as his wife, and they're together. He does not have relationship with her until she gives birth to Jesus. And then our understanding is that they have a very normal relationship beyond that. But Mary, they have a quick ceremony, and Mary then moves in and becomes his wife. That's the first chapter, but I wanted to say one thing as we close, and I have to do this very quick because we're out of time. And we're out of time because TJ just kept talking and talking. Man, it just doesn't shut up. So anyways, thank you. Matthew, when Matthew became a follower of Jesus, all he did was respond to Jesus' invitation And Jesus just said, follow me. That's all he did. There was nothing else attached to that. And Matthew followed from that point on. And his life was changed. His identity was changed. He went from Levi to Matthew, the gift of God. 
uh, God used him in great ways. But all he had to do was to respond to that invitation. If you're here today and you've never responded to that invitation, the invitation that Jesus gave to Matthew is the very same invitation that he gives to each and every one of us. And it's simply, follow me. And, and we, we tend to put a lot more around that. I like to explain it and just say, it's very simple. I love in Revelation, it says, Jesus says, it's like this. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone opens up, if anyone opens up their heart to me, I will come into them and we'll have fellowship. And so the invitation is to allow him in and the response is to follow him. And if that's you here today, I want you to know that you're sitting around in the midst of a a bunch of people who at some time said, I'll follow. And what I love about Matthew is, is that on the one hand, he couldn't find the answer in being religious. And so he leaves that. And apparently he goes towards money and partying. And uh, that's what the story indicates. And he doesn't find the answer there. But then one day he meets Jesus and he says, this is the answer. He left organized religion and he left the money and he left the partying because it wasn't there. But he never leaves Jesus. And the reason being is he found what he was looking for right there. And what Matthew was looking for is the very same thing that you and I were looking for, for some of us are. So as I close in prayer today, you have the opportunity just to say, Jesus, I'll follow. Come into my life. And as we read, his purpose is to save us from our sins. Ask him, say, forgive me of my sins. Come on in. I'll follow you. It's very simple. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word and for this story. And uh, I pray for those of us who are here today who've maybe never come to that place where we've looked at you and said, I will follow. As we were going through this today, you were speaking. We look at our lives and maybe we tried the religious route and tried to do all of these things. We just couldn't do it. Or maybe we've tried the other side, the money and the partying, and we thought we'd be a lot fuller on the inside, but we're just so empty. And then we hear your voice say, follow me. And so right now in a a very normal way, we just look to you and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I'll follow you. I want you to come into my life. I don't have it all figured out, but I just know what I'm looking for wasn't over there and it wasn't over there, but I'm sensing what I'm looking for is in you. And if you said that, you invited him in, however it is that you would say that, he steps in and you become his. And he promises he'll never leave. I would encourage you after the service, there's going to be a number of prayer partners standing in the front. Before you leave today, as we dismiss, make your way down to the front and pray with one of the prayer partners. Solidify that decision today. You'll never regret it. Father, I pray for those of us who are here today, that you would keep us till we meet again, that we would grow in you. We'd be the people of God that you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.